Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of April 26th, 2022, and episode 512. And this is your host, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. And uh, welcome back. Uh, I was out uh, last week. I was on vacation. Uh, much needed vacation uh, some time away from work and uh, uh just time away so it's good just to uh, recharge the batteries uh drove out to uh, south carolina uh, for a week uh, watched some minor league baseball and uh just uh took a dip in the pool and uh, just enjoyed some decently warm weather it wasn't overly warm hung out on the beach almost every day uh, well, it snowed here in Ohio, but uh, that's good. You know, at least I missed a little bit of snow for this year. But enough of me. What about the news? Yes, I, I did uh, miss a week last week, and there was some interesting stuff that happened during the week last week, news-wise. And uh, we're going to catch you up on all of it. And it's actually, to me, I think this is a, a really good news week. Uh, at least uh, putting it together from the last uh, couple of weeks. Two huge stories tonight we're going to talk about. Uh, at least I think they're huge. Uh, one's one's kind of the first one is not really a story so much as a release of a new book that we're going to talk about. But it's uh, I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know if it's going to be uh, groundbreaking, turn some heads, or what. Uh, but then the later. In our first segment, which is uh, the cryptid news, is another very exciting story, but uh, we'll see how that one flies. And we'll talk about some stuff that happened in the skies last week. And if I got time, I'll catch you up on what's going to happen tonight in the skies. So, yeah, just uh, keep your eyes in the skies, as I always say. And uh, gosh, why not? Let's just uh, let's do it. You came here for the news. Let's jump in to the news tonight. I'll jump, as we always do with cryptid news, because that's the way I, I've always done it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I should change it. I don't know. But uh, I've always cracked the uh, show open with cryptid news. I don't know. Just the way it is. Um generally always have some sort of cryptid stuff going on and uh i don't know just always done it that way cryptid news followed by um ghost news don't really ever have or i'm sorry ufo news then ghost news which we rarely ever have anymore it seems like and then other news which sometimes uh, some of these could be in multiple spots but uh, cryptid news tonight I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm getting lost. But uh, cryptid news. Uh, normally when you do a a show, whether it's a TV show, radio show, you always hold that big story for last. You know, you always tease it and you talk about it and you know, try to keep your crowd uh, here for the whole show. I, You know, originally this was the biggest story, but I think – uh, a couple stories in is, is probably a little bit bigger, at least to me, I'd say. But um, it kind of also goes back to uh, the book of the week, which I haven't done a book of the week on the show in many weeks. But this week we have a story surrounding a new book release. And the best way I could say how I could summarize what this book is going to be, uh, it's either going to be a big deal, a really big deal, or no one's going to care. And uh, I'm, I'm already excited about it. It's on my list. Uh, I might pre-order it. I haven't done it yet. It's a little pricey, but I think this book is going to be worth it. I'm kind of hoping to see uh, if anybody else has uh, 
gotten hold of this early before the release and uh, will write a little bit about it. So I'm not just, dis- I don't want to buy this thing and be d- totally disappointed. It'll spend around 30 bucks for a book. I kind of want to know I'm going to read opinion wise about this. Uh, then again, maybe nobody will care and this book will just fall flat. Haven't heard anybody else uh, talking about this in the last couple of days. So this might be the first time you're hearing about this. I kind of almost hope so. Uh, but I hope after you hear it here, you start hearing about it in other paranormal news outlets and uh, the uh, you know the big wigs of all the um, you know the cryptid field. Hopefully they're talking about it because this is as uh, roots as you can get with cryptozoology, and you'll find out why. Uh, question in chat: How do you get a book before it's released? Well. If you're good and you do a show that talks about books or you uh, have guests that uh, write books and you're good timing and you can get with that author, uh, a lot of times they'll send you a copy. Um, forget what they're called, uh, but like an author will get a number of copies that they can hand out so you can get a book for free. Uh, sometimes you can send a PDF. I've been asked for PDF files of my books. I don't normally do that, uh, but you can get them from the publishers sometimes because they'll have the books available early, and usually the release date is when uh, they'll have enough to distribute if it's a, a decent-sized book uh, or to get ready to ship uh, via Amazon if it's just a uh, run-of-the-mill book. But you can get books before they are released if you know the right people and you have the right timing uh, for that. Uh, I know plenty of uh, podcasts, even the paranormal, that get books before they're released. I've only gotten like one or two of my entire life uh, before they were released uh, to do reviews for. Um, but it's possible. And I would say that if this book is, is uh, kind of... If it gets out there and cryptozoologists start talking about it, this book could be pretty groundbreaking, uh, literally. And you'll know what I mean by that here in a second. So it's kind of a, a pun, and pun is intended, that it's groundbreaking. And uh, we're talking about bones here. That's why it's groundbreaking. So those who argue against the existence of Bigfoot... You know those people. They uh, chime in on all those stories and they jump on the websites and uh, they say, yeah, they're not real. Bigfoot doesn't exist. I mean, where are the bones? That's usually the go-to argument. How come we haven't found a set of bones or even a giant bone, you know, a leg bone? Uh, why isn't a dog dug up, uh, you know, uh, uh, one leg bone and dragged it through the woods? You know, uh, it would make sense at least accidentally well, creating a road or, or digging the foundation for a building or some other type of mistake, we would you know, come across the bones of a creature that's seen all over the world and in multiple parts of every state in the U.S. I mean, I'm surprised no one's hit one yet with a car like uh, Harry and the Hendersons. That's usually how we figure out uh, where animals are. You know, we had a, an idea that a mountain lion had crossed from the Black Hills of South Dakota uh, through Canada, through Ohio, through different parts of the Midwest. And it wasn't until it was hit by a car about an hour outside of New York City did we actually have the proof. So maybe that's what it's going to take. Um, but an article on futurism.com uh, led me to an article about bones discovered of a creature long rumored to exist, but had never had any proof. Very similar to Bigfoot. Uh, for about a hundred years, different forest tribes, local villagers, Dutch colonists, and even Western scientists and travelers have described seeing a small hair-covered creature in the jungles of Flores which is an island in Indonesia. 
That's in uh, Southeast Asia. It's a little bit uh, north of Australia, I guess, if you're looking at a map. Um, the creature, again, with short fur, uh, stands about two and a half to five feet tall. So it's not quite a, a big foot. Maybe, maybe call him a little foot. Wait, is that land before time? I don't know. Uh, two and a half to five feet tall. It's been uh, purportedly seen on Flores as uh, well as Sumatra, which is a little bit more popular, uh, popularly known island, and it's a little bit bigger. And Sumatra itself, my gosh, there's the uh, scientists feel there are more animals on Sumatra that have yet to be discovered than anywhere on a land, pretty much. Um, so this creature, we all know as Orang Pendek, one of the top cryptids. I know, I know. It's not the Loch Ness Monster. It's not Bigfoot. And it's not the Chupacabra. But uh, Orang Pendek is up there. It's uh, considered one of the creatures in cryptozoology that are on the short list of ones that have an actual chance of actually existing, being found, being discovered, and being approved by science. Getting the old stamp of approval by science is uh, actually existing. You know, we talk a lot about the, uh, the thylacine. That's, uh, that's another one. It could still be out there, uh, along with the uh, ivory-billed woodpecker. Might still be out there. Uh, another tale of the area in Flores and Sumatra is the Ibu Gogo, which is probably one of the coolest names. Now, it's not so much a, a cryptid as it is uh, kind of a, a, a people, a people who are said to uh, be very short able to run very fast. It's kind of a local folklore. So uh, I don't know why it's not uh, tied into cryptozoology as much as um, a lot of other creatures, including Orain Pendek. But the Ibu Gogo are uh, able to run fast and, again, have been a part of folklore on the island for decades. It's what uh, people tell their kids to have them uh, not run into the woods and, uh, I don't know. What do you do? You play in the woods in Flores? I don't know. Uh, things got really interesting, however. If you've uh, followed science or you've been around the field of uh, uh, cryptozoology for a while, I mean, I, I had heard of um, uh, Ring Pendek very early on before I really got into cryptozoology. And that was probably uh, late 1990s, early aughts. I guess. Uh, so it was, you know, it was always on that list. Uh, but things got really interesting after scientists, uh, they were out looking for evidence of the original migration of humans from Asia to Australia. And they discovered remains of an individual who would have stood just less than four feet tall as an adult. And that was back in uh, 2003. It's fairly recent. Uh, since then, 15 specimens have been discovered of this hominin that lived until about 50,000 years ago. Of course, scientists estimate that. It's bounced all around. It uh, was uh, anywhere from 12,000 to 100,000, but uh, they now estimate about 50,000 years ago. And this, of course, is the Homo floresiensis. And it was officially named... Um, it's also known as the Hobbit, which, of course, is uh, stealing from a kind of a well-known book. Heard of the Hobbit. Uh, they got in trouble for that. They weren't allowed to call it that, but unofficially it's known as the Hobbit. Because uh, uh, Homo floresiensis is a little difficult to say sometimes. Um, it's become uh, fodder, of course, for cryptozoologists to explain modern-day sightings of short people seen in the jungles of Southeast Asia. And of course, you know, people are in love with Bigfoot, the tall uh, hair-covered creatures. But, uh, you know, these seen in Flores and Sumatra, these short creatures uh, are not alone. There's other sightings all over the world of, um, I guess you call them man-sized 
and below. Of course, you have that uh, on islands uh, such as Flores, which is uh, a little smaller. Uh, animals tend to grow a little bit smaller. And so you would assume that people would grow a little smaller over time as well. Um, but it, of course, was until modern man came 50,000 years ago and, uh, you know, probably wiped them out. A couple drive-by shootings on a boat. Uh, got rid of them, I guess. Um, so, yeah, modern humans arrived. It's uh, That's when it's thought that Homo floresiensis was wiped out by this larger, stronger, and, well, of course, smarter cousin. Now, anthropologist Gregory Forth had heard the stories of an ape-like half-human creature that lived in caves on the slopes of a local volcano. He had tried to find a rational explanation for their stories and figured it was just folklore that they were seeing these short creatures or short people running around in the woods. And uh, this was actually about 20 years prior to the discovery of Homo floresiensis or the Hobbit's bones. So, you know, these stories predate the discovery of these bones. So that, that really makes a really strange connection. And uh, it got the, uh, the attention of a lot of people. And, of course, in cryptozoology, that's why it's ranked up there high on the list, because there is a potential. You tie in, of course, cryptozoology, the, the cornerstone of cryptids is folklore. You know, you're talking about mermaids and the kraken. Uh, Bigfoot, all of these are tied very heavily to uh, culturally shared stories or folklore. Yeah, usually local, but sometimes it's uh, a little bit wider of an expanse. So this is a, a very unique situation. And according to his Simon & Schuster bio, Gregory Forth received his doctorate at Oxford and was a professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta for more than three decades. Uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and is the author of more than 100 scholarly papers and several academic books. So uh, that makes him a scientist, I would say. Very science oriented type of person. Very critical, very analytical and uh, the, the reason for this article uh, that uh, kind of made me spiral down a rabbit hole uh, was on futurism.com that I ended up uh, actually read uh, some of the papers that he wrote and uh, a lot of other things talking about the uh, orang pendek and uh, homo floresiensis and all these other things, which, uh, you know, I follow that when they discovered the bones and made the big announcement. I've used that uh, in a lot of uh, different um, presentations I've done on cryptozoology. I, I did mention, I think I mentioned it in my book, Handbook for the Amateur Cryptozoologist. Uh, it wasn't like a major cornerstone of cryptozoology, but tying in something that's uh, actually potential discovery coming around the corner, maybe if somebody stumbles out of the woods. Um. So, yeah, the reason for the article is that he has an upcoming book release. And that book release will be the first to a general audience. So this uh, uh, gentleman is used to writing science uh, academic papers, scholarly papers. Uh, so that's uh, – I mean I don't have a problem reading scholarly papers. I actually read one that was uh, 40 pages Last late last night, I read a couple on this topic a couple of days ago. That was one was like sixty pages long. So I have no problem reading these. Uh, but if I'm going to buy a uh, regular book, I hope it doesn't come across as like that. But what I've read uh, so far from Gregory Fourth, this book might actually be pretty good. So I've got to put a pre-order in soon. I want to get it before it comes out. And the book. Uh, it's being published by Pegasus Books and is due for release very soon. Yes, May 3rd. 
That's real quick. Uh, so he's uh, doing a good job. He's getting the uh, information about the book out, talking about it. Uh, there's been a few stories written about it, but uh, again, hopefully the paranormal news uh, picks up on it and some cryptozoologists pick up on it. I know I posted a, uh, a couple of different um, links to that uh, on a couple of pages that I have. Actually, my personal page, I, I just think it's really important. I think it's a big deal. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, the book is called Between Ape and Man. Between Ape, I'm sorry, Between Ape and Human. Pays to look at my notes, I guess. Uh, Between Ape and Human by Gregory Fourth. And uh, normally I, I like to uh, buy directly from the uh, publisher because it's, I could tell you as a writer, uh, as an author, I should say it's um, it's better. They they get more money from the book, and Amazon unfortunately takes a lot of your money, uh, but it is cheaper on Amazon. Just to say, I, I don't make any hardly any money at all from books on Amazon, but I sell way more there than I do through um, my uh, publishing company. So it is what it is. Um, so between ape and human, he comes to what he describes as a startling and controversial conclusion. But he doesn't come right out and say it. He doesn't say that, uh, that he feels that uh, Homo floresiensis might have survived into modern times. So he's just trying to tease us. So I don't know what the big startling and controversial conclusion is. That's my hope anyway. He said he'll come right out and say it. But um, I think it's possible they've survived a little bit longer than 50,000 years. But I don't know. I don't want to be let down by this, but I'm going to have to get my hands on the book, I guess, to know for sure. So again, between ape and human, I don't think I have the link saved. Yeah, I'll publish it. I'll put it out there. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, available for pre-sale on Amazon and Pegasus Books and uh, Simon & Schuster's page. And I'm sure a lot of other online bookstores as well. And it's about, uh, I think it's like $28 and change on Amazon. I think it's almost 30 on uh, Simon & Schuster's page. But, uh, yeah, I, hopefully I'll get my hands on it. We'll talk about it. I do get my hands on it. And, actually get some time to read it all right so moving on it's a horrible segue don't ever say that don't ever say so moving on uh so moving from homo floresiensis to uh a little easier name to say the loch ness monster which i mentioned earlier uh friday april 15th it wasn't tax day this year it's good friday uh, April 15th marked the third official sighting of the Loch Ness Monster. I knew you guys were all excited about this. Uh, Glenn Blevins, a man who has lived in the area for about 30 years, was out with binoculars hoping to see some osprey. Uh, osprey are pretty cool. Um, I've always wanted to see bald eagles out of the wild. Now that I've seen quite a few and they're all over the place. Uh, osprey are pretty neat to see, especially when you're kayaking and they see him dive in the water. Anyway, uh, instead, he saw a dark-colored object in the water for about 20 seconds. And uh, did he have a camera? Did he have a camera? Did he have a phone? You can't put a phone? You can put a phone on a, on a just so you know. You could put a phone up to your binoculars and take pictures. I'm not sure if anybody's aware of this. Uh, he described a sighting as uh, saying, uh, quote, I was near Alburi Castle. Alduri? Alduri Castle. I guess I spelled that wrong. Alduri Castle on February 15th. February. Friday, 15th, April. Why do they say it that way? So, so hard to say that. Friday, 15th, April. Instead of uh, April 15th. Friday, April 15th. Uh, anyway, working on the banks of the lock where I saw a large 
animate object uh, in the water between both banks of the lock at approximately 9.30 a.m. It was difficult to estimate the size, but it was definitely larger than a seal. And given the angle, there may have been two, one behind the other, unquote. Uh, the article in the Daily Record doesn't mention if uh, Glenn is a believer or a skeptic in the creature. Usually they're always a skeptic, and then you know they make this sighting, and, well, gosh, I'm a believer now because I saw it. I to totally believe in it now. Uh, but that wasn't uh, the case, it seems. But uh, it doesn't seem as though it took too much to convince him that what he was looking at uh, was an elusive creature that completely defies any rational, logical explanation, of course. And uh, last year, there were six physical sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, uh, along with 10 more that were spotted on the webcam overlooking part of the lock. So uh, last year was the first year that these um, official sightings, doing the air quotes with my fingers, uh, were actually uh, separated. Gary Campbell, ho home of the... Uh, uh, he operates the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register. He uh, decided, I think it's a great idea, separating the live physical sightings from the uh, webcam sightings, which uh, we've had uh, from some here in the United States, uh, one in Japan, I think others from all over the world. So it's good. It's good. And we'll keep an eye on that, see if uh, somebody else doesn't see the Loch Ness Monster again soon. And uh, another animal I mentioned in the first story. Uh, very excited to talk about this. This story actually has been brewing for a while. And there was an article that came out, um, I believe, uh, almost two weeks ago. And I was going to talk about it on the last show two weeks ago, but uh, I, I don't know why. I just I kind of waited. I really wanted the time to be able to talk about this because this is very near and dear to me. One of my favorite cryptids next to uh, mountain lions appearing in the east. Uh, this is uh, pretty cool. Probably one of my faves here in the United States. Uh, so wrapping up cryptid news, uh, one of my favorite animals that are said to be extinct, said to be gone. They don't exist. Um, as a matter of fact, in September of 2021, uh, this creature was among the 23 plants and animals that uh, fell off of the Endangered Species Act of 1973 into being recognized as officially extinct. And it's the ivory-billed woodpecker, which, I again, I mentioned earlier in the uh, first story of this first segment. Uh, one of the third, once the third largest woodpecker in the world, uh, was last seen and heard from officially back in 1944, there was some grainy video footage and some uh, audio footage, I believe, earlier in the year. Uh, but that was it. 1944 was the last time officially recognized to be alive. And since then, people have claimed to have seen and heard the woodpecker. But uh, mostly, these are misidentifications of the pelated or redheaded woodpeckers, which uh, the pelated looks very close uh, just some minor cosmetic differences in the uh, patterns of black and white and red on the body. Uh, but, uh, of course, it's a little smaller than the ivory-billed woodpecker. The the bill is uh, uh, ivory-colored. It's a little lighter in color. Uh, but they're very hard to tell from one another unless you really know the difference. It's kind of like... Uh, the uh, the monarch and the viceroy, you know, unless you're looking at a book and you go out and you spot one right away, it's kind of hard to tell the difference just by looking at these things. Um, 
but if you a lot of practice and really understanding the differences uh, you don't have to be an expert you don't have to be an ornithologist to tell the difference between these two birds but um, I mean it's it's been constant I would say since I've been in this the field of cryptozoology there's been at least four or five major bursts of stories of scientists claiming they have proof of the uh, ivory-billed woodpecker. But uh, here we are. It fell into extinction last year. Uh, the government says they do not exist. Uh, so back in 2004, there was a kayaker that claimed to have seen one in an Arkansas cypress swamp. Uh, right after that, scientists and naturalists uh, scoured Arkansas. They also uh, looked at uh, 523,000 plus acres across eight states, but never found even a feather or a shred of any kind of evidence of the bird whatsoever. Uh, Cornell University bird biologist John Fitzpatrick, lead author of a 2005 study that claimed the woodpecker had been rediscovered in eastern Arkansas. Uh, was based on a series of sightings by researchers. And uh, since then, his claim went unsubstantiated. So uh, even other scientists discredited that, said, no, no, he saw plated. Sorry, dude. But now, fast forward to 2022, and Steve Lata, the director of conservation at the National Aviary in Pittsburgh, that's Pennsylvania, Yins, uh, recently led a group of researchers into the Pearl River Swamp location uh, in Louisiana, which is kind of funny because when the story first broke, they were talking about uh, an undisclosed location, top secret location. Uh, then there, uh, there was a video that came out, and he pretty much gave a map and he gave a picture, and uh, I know where it's at. I'm going to find me a ivory bill woodpecker. Uh, so the Pearl River Swamp, located in, in Louisiana, where it's very close by to one of the benefactors. Uh, so where somebody gave some cash ola for these scientists to uh, go through the uh, swampy area in search of these birds. So it, was, it made for a good long search, which is good because usually, uh, you know, if you're packing bags and you're staying out of a motel, I uh, get quite expensive uh, pretty quick, and then you're uh, you're out of luck. And uh, you're heat train all the money on hotel rooms and, of course, beer to get you through. So that money flows pretty quick. Well, probably not beer. Maybe beer. No, they probably drink wine. I don't know what they drink. Um, so actually during uh, – right before they led their – uh, research investigations. It was about three years. So 2019 through 2021, right before that, there had been some recent sightings in the area. Uh, so they felt like this was the, the perfect place to go and do their research. Uh, during their research, uh, now I don't have a number of how many people were involved. I think it's a small handful of people, maybe six people, but each person, each one of the researchers involved in this uh, Pearl River Swamp location investigation, had an encounter with an ivory-billed woodpecker. Uh, that's what they say, which is uh, mind-boggling to read that. Uh, his total research included visits to Louisiana from uh, off and on from 2012 to 2021. And uh, his research also included photos and videos from previous expeditions. I think there was... Uh, Photos from 2006, a video from 2005 or 2006 that was included, which kind of threw me off because I would think if you did a three-year research investigation with modern technology, you'd have had a little bit better chance. But uh, so spent about uh, 10 years researching this. And uh, Lata's uh, first encounter was where a bird flew upwards in front of him uh, where he said, uh, quote, he described it saying, uh, it flew up at an angle and I watched it for about six to eight seconds, which is fairly long for an ivory-billed woodpecker. I was surprised 
I was visibly shaking afterwards. You realize you've seen something special that very few people had the opportunity to see, unquote. Uh, he also was talking about uh, that initial sighting where it, uh, and I've, I've had this feeling too. Um, so he basically, when just seeing this, uh, this woodpecker, this ivory bill, this giant woodpecker flying, he, was, he didn't even care about, you know, this is what you came here for. You wanted to capture this. You wanted to get evidence. You want to get photos. You want to get video. You want to get audio. You want to get all this to prove to the world that these things exist. And, and what did he do? He saw this thing and just said, wow, I don't even care about taking pictures. I just want to, I just want to see this. I just want to experience this. And, uh, you know, I could, I could say I had a similar feeling uh, back in, um, what was that, 2017 with the, the uh, total eclipse. Like, I was just, I took a couple of pictures. I was like, you know what, I don't care. I only got three minutes left. I want to enjoy this thing. This is beautiful. Uh, so I, I get where he's coming from, but you can't lose focus, man. You, you got to do, you got to do the, you got to do it. You got to document. You're a researcher. Um, you know, worry about your experience later. But, uh, you know, I get it. Totally understand. Uh, and his research, uh, this last three-year uh, push, included drones, trail cameras, audio equipment. Uh, they uh, climb trees. They use uh, these cameras up in trees looking over the canopy uh, because uh, these birds, uh, especially any type of woodpecker, uh, they'll fly along the canopy and and ivory bill woodpeckers are probably the most skittish birds on the planet. Um, and they live in some very, very difficult terrain. Um, the birds prefer wet, swampy, bottomland forests full of big old trees. So old growth forests. Uh, and he says, quote, they feed on recently dead or dying trees, hardwood trees, and especially species that have what we call very tight bark so that they are not so old and dead that the bark is falling off, unquote. Uh, of his finding, Lada states, quote, we have photos and videos from 2019 through late 2021 depicting apparent ivory-billed woodpeckers, including a group of three woodpeckers forging together. There's been an occasional single photograph or short video, but nothing compared to the quantity and quality of data that we're presenting now, unquote. Uh, he hopes his findings and his, uh, really his methodology, his approach to trying to find these birds uh, will help continue conservation efforts to preserve the areas where the birds can thrive despite being listed as extinct. And those methods also, uh, that he's actually been able to see these uh, birds a little bit better than uh, a lot of teams have uh, claimed in the past. You know, people who, you know, if you're sticking on kayaks and trying to wade through swampland, you're not going to see much. It's very difficult. Um, and that's been the biggest barrier. That uh, it's just the fact that these birds are very, very hard to find. They're very skittish. They don't trust people. Um, you know, we've been hunting them for 150 plus years. Of course, they're skittish. Uh, they don't like people. And that, and you tie in the horrendous terrain that you have to go through, swampland, a very thick vegetation, thick forests. Uh, they, they're up higher in the canopies. Very hard to see. Uh, most of their research, most of their videos and photos uh, that they've taken have happened earlier in the spring before the trees become full and lush, because you're really not going to see anything in the late summer out there. It's just too thick. You can't really move around. You can't angle yourself at all. It's just, you, you can't see anything down there. Um, again, their research, they're hoping that not only does it spur some conservation efforts in the old growth forests, the old growth swamps, uh, but again, also to help other teams overcome the uh, very 
high difficulty of observing these creatures in the wild. Uh, again, due to the conditions as well as the skittish nature of the ivory-billed woodpecker. Uh, on April 12th, Lada released information through YouTube where he shared a lot of information on his personal experiences using artist renderings and drawings. So if you watch this video, it's, it's I, my jaw dropped when I saw what looked to me like a, a ivory-billed woodpecker flying away, but then he, he pointed out, he you know talked over the, the video stating that it was uh, artist rendering. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I thought it was the real deal. Uh, so I was very excited to see it, but a uh, little let down when I saw the the thing. The picture was actually a rendering of what he saw uh, based on the landscape. Uh, there's some drawings and a lot of other uh, very good science used in that uh, short presentation, YouTube presentation, kind of more geared toward the general public. Uh, although uh, he does use a lot of science in there with it. Um, some of it, I don't, I don't know. I was a little bit confused by. Uh, so they had seen a woodpecker, an ivory billed woodpecker, in a tree, and they've obviously it was a photograph, and they also decided after the bird was gone, of course, uh, somebody scurried up the tree and cut down the branch, it was a very large, like a V-shaped branch, and they used that. Uh, very scientifically, they uh, used measurements that you could see in the photograph to create uh, a mock size of how big this this bird was sitting in the tree, uh, pecking at the uh, the uh, bark, and it was bigger than a plated woodpecker. So, uh, using angles and a lot of uh, math and science, uh, they pretty much prove that what you're seeing in there is not a plated woodpecker, but an ivory-billed woodpecker. So. But my thing was, uh, and it was also, I uh, got defensive because he said that uh, some scientists think that uh, the branch they cut down is not the same branch that's in the picture. So he had to prove that through other pictures and documentation. But my thing is, uh, if you see an ivory-billed woodpecker and you're talking about conservation, why would you cut the branch down? When you saw one, you know, trying to eat from that branch or trying to get, uh, you know, through the bark. But anyway, um, I guess, unfortunately, scientific discoveries uh, sometimes come at the demise of creatures or the demise of their um, habitat. But, uh, man, we got to be careful with this stuff. That's why I don't think it was a good idea to name the swamp publicly where they think they saw these things because now people are going to go, man, if I could shoot one, I'll be a billionaire because I'll prove it. And then people will pay me a lot of money for it. Maybe I shouldn't say this on the air. But uh, not a good idea, I don't think, to, to do all that. I think it's a little bit irresponsible to an extent. Of course, uh, in order for your research to be validated, people may actually have to visit that location and follow up on your documentation. And uh, while I was very excited about the story and uh, very excited to uh, read about it and the uh, matter-of-factish accounts of seeing these birds. Uh, I have to say, after watching the video, uh, even though there was a lot of great demonstrations, there was um, some video uh, showing these birds flying and some photographs uh, shown you know, that were just talked about in some of the uh, print. Um, I got to say, I... I really left a little less convinced um unfortunately um and it the video in, in his documentation uh, on youtube really shows it really demonstrates just how hard it is to get any good footage of these creatures and why it's it's remained a mystery even if they are out there for so long because it's it's just unbelievable how thick the vegetation is and, and how hard it is to move around. Uh, you're basically on a kayak, making sure you don't uh, invite a, an alligator to sit in your lap. And, you know, you're, you're peering toward the skies. And even at that angle, you're a little lower than you would be if you're walking. So it's a little bit difficult to see in, in the air. 
And these things will take off, fly at canopy level. And then it seems like when they're up in a tree, they were flying low near the water uh, because, they're again, they're very skittish around people. Um, but a lot of the stuff, it, it just really felt like they were trying to convince you more than anything. And it, it felt like uh, you might remember the uh, thylacine story we were talking about. Um, was that this year? Yeah, it was this year about the sighting of the thylacine and the they were talk, trying to convince you that what you're looking at is a thylacine. It's almost kind of what I felt like. But the science was, was pretty sound. But whether or not uh, other scientists are going to take that as proof, um, I honestly would say at this point, highly unlikely. And I think this is going to end up just like all the other, uh, the other attempts to validate or prove the ivory build woodpecker. It's just going to linger no one's going to follow up on it it's not going to be approved by peer review uh, the work was published back in december of 2021 and yes yeah, so far no one's taken the bait no one's properly peer reviewed it uh, there's been some negative things said about it and really unfortunately not a whole lot of positive except for people uh, other ornithologists that have also done ivory build woodpecker research uh, so as excited as I was, I don't think it's going to change anything. Unfortunately, I think you're going to have to get a, a specimen or you have to get awful close. You're going to have to get a clear physical, uh, some sort of uh, much better photographs. So what, the, what they have in, in video is so far away. Uh, you zoom in, it's all pixelated. You can't see really anything and, and you're struggling to see the the black and white of the wings and, and stuff like that. So it, it's really difficult to validate. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to prove anything, but the hope is there. And I hope someday that, um, it seems like they're, they got a lot closer than anybody else, uh, as far as photographing and uh, taking video of the ivory bull woodpeckers. Hopefully that work can be compounded. Somebody else can go down there and get that money shot and uh, finally prove all this once and for all. But even then, it's not going to bring them back from the dead. And uh, even if we do prove that the ivory-billed woodpecker is alive and well, it, uh, you know, the government may put, uh, you know, de-extinct it, but it's going to be critically endangered. And uh, I really fear that uh, the search will be on to capture one or more of these, uh, maybe a male and female, try to have a breeding pair in a zoo. And the next thing you know, they're going to be cloning them. And we're going to have seven-foot-tall ivory-billed woodpeckers like Jurassic Park. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm sure if they could get DNA, they would try to bring them back, which uh, I'm not big on this artificial stuff. But uh, we'll see what transpires with that story. And if anybody else goes out there another expedition which seems like it happens every couple of years so we shall see what happens with the ivory build woodpecker uh, so i mentioned at the top of the show last week i was on vacation uh, thursday last week april 21st was my wife's birthday i won't disclose how old she turned but it makes me feel a lot older especially since i'm a few years older than she is um, so Thursday afternoon was a pretty big day in the UFO field, sort of. Uh, it all started Thursday afternoon, again, last week, April 21st. That evening, there was a flurry of UFO sightings all across the Midwest, all the way into Canada. Uh, WRTV ABC out of Indianapolis helped clear things up a little bit for the locals in their market. The following morning, uh, they had a headline stating, quote, no, it's not a UFO. Here's what was flying over central Indiana, unquote. Uh, other uh, news organizations, I see Chicago, Detroit, um, uh, even here in Cleveland, uh, I guess they were seeing them here. I wasn't here. I was in South Carolina. At the time, uh, even up in Ontario, Canada, 
Uh, they also kind of uh, mopped it up too the next day, explaining what happened. And uh, usually it's pretty quick, but this time I don't know. It, it just seemed like it took it took a long time. It took like twelve hours for the truth to get out there this time. It's a little little bad. Uh, numerous people reported seeing a strange string of lights in the sky, and if well, you haven't figured it out yet. Uh, it's just another string of sightings related to the SpaceX Starlink satellites. Yes, string of sightings, pun intended. Uh, Fox 2 out of Detroit also reported that a number of viewers were reporting the strange lights, strange lights in the sky and reports were also known from Pittsburgh to Chicago that evening. Uh, so I've got reports from Pittsburgh outlets, Chicago, Detroit. Um, but... It also, uh, there's news out all the way out in Colorado about seeing the lights. And again, as far north as Ontario, Canada. I'm sure there's other cities that have also uh, had local reports uh, called in or emailed in or via Twitter about all these uh, lights in the sky. Uh, the launch of the satellites occurred on Thursday, April 21st at 1.51 p.m., Eastern Time. Uh, the rocket delivered 53 more, which is, you know, just what we need, more of these satellites. 53 Starlink satellites into low Earth orbit from the launch at the Space Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. That's so weird to say Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. But uh, there it is. Uh, so the rocket launch and subsequent release of the Starlink satellites uh, at high orbit. So 1.51 p.m., the, uh, you know, it takes a little while for these uh, satellites to deploy, depart. The rocket would have happened in the afternoon, but they do uh, kind of make their way around the Earth a few times as they're kind of getting into where they need to be. And when they're doing that, they're in a line. And when the sun goes down, when it gets darker, all these are a lot higher up in the sky. And the, the angle of the sun, which when the sun sets, you don't see the sun in the sky anymore. It gets dark. Uh, you see a little orange. Orange fades to red. Uh, overhead is, is dark. And then the blue turns to blackness. It just turns dark and all the stars come out, right? Uh, even when it's dark out, you don't see it, but the sunlight is up there. And these Starlink satellites, what they do is they they hit that sunlight and uh, the sun, if you've ever, I shouldn't say if you've ever seen it, you shouldn't be looking at the sun. Why are you doing that? Well, you can go ahead and look at the sun, but that'll probably be the last thing you ever see uh, other than the bright bright dots in your eyes for the, the rest of your life. Um, but you'll see those little dots. Yeah, but if you've... Uh, so I could say, when I saw the uh, the uh, 2016 eclipse, uh, you could see the brilliant bright light of the corona. And then when the, uh, the sun started peeking out, it was a brilliant, perfectly bright white light uh, so that white light will reflect on these objects high up in the sky. And that's what we see down here when we see a, a satellite. We see it scintillating in the sky. We see the reflection down here on the ground. So that's what people were seeing uh, in the early evening from that rocket launch. Now, if all that excitement wasn't enough, residents in the United Kingdom were able to see the rocket in its late stages uh, which caused some concern over seeing a light in the sky followed by a glowing cloud. The rocket launch occurred about 7 p.m. UK time, and they were actually seeing the booster separation. And the, the cloud and the, and the light, again, caused because they were high up in the sky. And you could... Uh, Obviously, was reflecting from the sunlight that was high, not visible, but just up there in the upper atmosphere that we can't see because nothing's hitting it. it just goes out into space. 
and uh, people were a little freaked out. It's a little different than the Starlink. So this is just like a, a fuzzy cloud, but there was no clouds in the area where people were seeing this. And uh, these two things were kind of moving around each other. It was a little weird. And, of course, um, some people are not convinced that what they saw was a rocket. But, you know, that's, uh, that's, what pe- that's how, just how people are. And if all of that wasn't enough, there's more. Uh, a few days prior, on April 17th, a video popped up on YouTube might have seen this. This was making the rounds on a, a couple of UFO uh, believer channels on YouTube. Uh, the title of the original video says, uh, A Mysterious Flying Whirlpool Over Mauna Kea on 2022 And that's the title of the original video. It's, it's actually sped up. So if you're watching it, it's uh, fast-forwarded a little bit, just so you can see the uh, whirlpool move across the screen. And it was taken, the video was taken from the live stream camera from the Subaru Sky Camera near Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And you could, in the video, you could see on the left, there was a uh, little whirlpool type thing, a little spinny thingy. Moving from left to right. It's actually really quick in the video, but it was actually a lot slower than that if you saw it live. And many thought the video showed a UFO, but those who had been watching the camera knew what the object was. You know, UFO crazy people aren't watching a telescope, a live stream. It's all the uh, nerdy people like me that were looking at... uh, the planets that were being shown, uh, just, you know, just to see what this uh, telescope was pointed at at the time. Uh, Netherlands-based satellite tracker Marco Langbroek told SpaceWeather.com that the video, quote, shows the characteristic spiral caused by the post-deorbit burn fuel vent of the Falcon 9 upper stage, which was deorbited over the Pacific Ocean just after the end of the first revolution, unquote. See, I told you, a bunch of geeks, which is cool because I understood all that. Uh, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket carrying the National Reconnaissance Office mission, and NROL, N-R-O-L-85, uh, which is a spa- uh, spy satellite launched at 6.13 a.m. on April 17th, at Vandenberg Space Force Base, California. Again, that's weird to say. Vandenberg Space Force Base used to be Air Force Base, uh, California. The Subaru Telescope is an 8.2-meter optical infrared telescope operated by the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan and sits at uh, 13,579 feet above sea level near the dormant volcano of Mauna Kea. There's a lot of of, uh, telescopes up there. And if you're looking through the Subaru telescope, uh, you can actually see other observatories uh, in that camera shot. Um, But, you know, Mauna Kea out in Hawaii, uh, very high elevation, very clear skies, usually, although in the video... I had a laugh. There's a lot of cloud cover coming in toward the end of the uh, spiral. Uh, but generally, very clear skies. It's probably one of the best places to put a telescope in the entire planet. Uh, that high up out in Hawaii. It's uh, actually operated by minimal staff due to the elevation. So most operations are remote. You don't want people passing out up there on top of the mountain. Up there on Mauna Kea. And speaking of things happening in the sky, uh, kind of missed it. Again, I was on vacation. I was actually excited to talk about this, but then I remembered I wasn't going to have a show. Uh, so I kind of had to make a notation here to talk about it this week. Uh, I should have talked about it the week prior. I don't know why I didn't. 
as it was taking place. And I'm talking about the Lyrid Meteor Shower, which started April 15th and runs through April 29th. It uh, did peak out last week, Thursday night into Friday, April 21st to the 22nd. Uh, if you know your stars, you got a star chart handily available. Uh, you can look to the right of Vega in the constellation Lyra the Harp, the late evening and before the moon rises, which is uh, pretty late, I think. Um, most places. By now, the moon is a waxing crescent, so there's not much of it left. I think it's like 15% right now. Uh, we'll rise in the early morning. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, much later. It's like 5 in the morning. Uh, so it won't be a big factor. Uh, the, the moon was a lot fuller toward the peak last week, so it kind of uh, would have made a dent. Uh, Thursday night, I looked toward the sky. All I saw, saw was a big moon. So I didn't even bother to look for the, uh, the meteor shower. Uh, when I looked, it was, uh, I kind of didn't time it very good. Uh, clouds are the big factor here in Ohio. And you can think C1861G1 for this, uh, otherwise known as Comet Thatcher. Comet Thatcher creates the Lyrids. Uh, the comet is on a 415-year orbit. And if you're young, unlike myself, uh, you can uh, maybe see it. It's going to be back in the year 2283. Uh, so be sure to mark your calendar for 2283. I don't know what month. I think it's maybe September. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll be around. Pretty sure I won't be around for that one. And if you're interested in seeing the Lyrids, uh, I know I'm in I'm in the Cleveland area, so I already know where to look. But if you're anywhere else in the northern hemisphere, uh, I I use time and table. I'm sorry, timeanddate.com, not time and table. Timeanddate.com uh, forward slash astronomy and the meteor showers, and you can look up the Lyrids, and it gives you a nice little map because uh, they come out of an area and they'll seemingly come from one spot and they'll come out in all directions uh, but if you look toward vega a little bit right toward vega don't stare don't stare at a star because it makes it hard if you stare in the empty darkness uh, but make sure if you're watching for uh, meteors i uh, have a chair don't crank your neck backwards i always like to sit like on a, a picnic lay on a picnic table so I, i'm if I'm looking at that right direction, because your neck will hurt within like 10 minutes. Trust me. Um, but uh, move your eyes around a lot. Uh, look at near objects. Don't look at lights. If you got to use a light, use a, a red light to maximize your night vision. Uh, but your eyes will actually dance around and make you think you're seeing things. Yeah, make you think that the stars are moving when they're not. Uh, so... Move your eyes around a little bit. Focus on a star. Focus on uh, something close to you, a branch and a tree or your, even your hand to kind of break up the monotony of staring at the sky. And uh, you'll see some cool stuff. Now, the southern hemisphere won't be able to see the Lyrids as they radiate from high in the sky, uh, nearly overhead and toward the northeast. And then it'll kind of move toward the south near the morning kind of give you a at least for me i don't know about you guys uh however in the southern hemisphere there are the edda aquarids which take place from april 15th to may 27th peaking around may 4th through the 5th so that one's coming up if you're in the southern hemisphere and you can think Halley's comet for that one that's the remnants of Halley's comet which returns Every 75 years. I remember seeing that back in 1986. Uh, very, very faint. It was probably, uh, I think they said it was the worst sighting of Halley's Comet in 2,000 years. It figures. That's just my luck. Uh, but I do remember seeing it in the early morning hours through a pair of binoculars. It was the coolest thing I'd seen until the eclipse. Eh, probably. I'm sure I saw some other astronomical events that were pretty cool, but... Uh, uh, if you're lucky, Halley's Comet 
It'll be back in 2061. So again, mark your calendars for that one. And if you're up Wednesday morning, tomorrow morning, if you're going to be up all night listening to the uh, to the show again to catch all this awesome information, you can uh, look to the moon in the eastern sky. And as I mentioned, it's going to be a waxing crescent. Not much of it left. Uh, and just above that, you'll see Jupiter. Bright light in the sky there, as well as Venus to its right and a little bit higher in the sky from uh, Jupiter. So to the right, a little higher. Uh, this is the second conjunction of the month of planets as Mars and Saturn got together earlier this month. It was a surprise to not see a lot of UFO reports about those stars. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll get my get my telescope out tonight. Well, no, I got to work in the morning. Ah, shucks. Maybe tomorrow night I'll get that thing out. So that being said, yes, definitely keep your eyes in the skies, uh, your ears in the woods, and all that stuff. I will see you next week. But yes, keep your eyes in the skies, your ears in the woods, the hair standing on the back of your neck, and always keep your mind slightly ajar. Above all else, don't stop believing. For the Paranormal News Insider, This is Dr. Brian D. Parsons reporting.